who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the power, by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the time that You've given us this morning. Help us to use it for Your glory. Help us to redeem the time, for it is surely fleeting. I pray that You do a work in my heart this morning. I pray that through the power and unction of the Holy Ghost that Your Word would be preached effectually. Lord, I pray that hearts would be touched. I pray that if there's any amongst us lost and undone, that they'd not wait and give another day to the devil, that they'd not gamble with their eternity for a few more moments, Lord, of the lust of the flesh. I pray they'd turn to You, that they'd be eternally saved by Your grace, that they'd see in the cross of Calvary that their only hope is through Jesus Christ. Lord, if You'll do these things, we'll be careful to give You the praise, honor, and glory that is due Your name. Lord, we love You, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Hebrews, chapter number 1, presents to us an opening statement concerning, really, a synopsis concerning the entire book of Hebrews. You know, I've been studying through and we've been preparing for lessons that are coming up uh, that we're going to study through the Apollos course. And uh, the book of Hebrews, the main theme of the book of Hebrews is this idea of better things. You go through the book of Hebrews and it talks about, hey, you know, uh, God had a, a people in the Old Testament and God had a relationship with those people. But now in the New Testament, there's a better relationship. It goes through and it talks about how there was an Old Testament covenant, but now there's a New Testament covenant and it's a better covenant. It talks about there was an Old Testament priesthood under Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, but how there's a New Testament priesthood under Jesus Christ and it's far greater talks about how there was an Old Testament system, but there's a New Testament system. This day of grace, of coming to Christ uh, by faith through grace, it's a new, it's a better way, it's a better system. And talks about through the Old Testament, there was a way that God communicated with humanity, revealed Himself to humanity, and it was a good way, but now, in this day that we live in, we have the Son of God. And by the way, how many of you know that the Son is the living Word, and this is the written Word? Amen. And so they are synonymous and harmonious in nature. And that uh, He has spoken in these last days by His Son, which is a far better way to speak. Verse 1 says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. And that's talking about the old dispensational way that God communicated with mankind. And, uh, by, we could basically lump up in three ways that God dealt with humanity. Uh, throughout the entire Old Testament, really since the beginning of time up until Calvary, He dealt with uh, humanity through creation. He revealed Himself through creation. The Bible says the heavens declare the handiwork of God. You can look at creation and see that there's God in heaven. Amen? Listen, there's certain things that we just uh, we, we just take for granted. I mean, I walk down, I look at this remembrance table here. I, I don't I never once did it enter my mind that this remembrance table evolved from a step stool. Amen? Are you with me this morning? We all right? I can preach, but you're going to have to help me just a little bit. Amen? Nobody walked in this room and assumed that this uh, remembrance table just appeared out of nowhere, right? Nobody thought that there was a big bang happening in the church house and boom, here's a remembrance table, right? That'd be nonsense. That'd be foolishness. If you believe that, they'd lock you away. Amen? 
And yet you look at this remembrance table, and it's a beautiful piece of furniture. There's design, there's, there's creativity within it. But think about the vast creativity that is in creation. Think about how creation operates and functions. Uh, think about even just your human body, all of the things. I mean, hey, it don't take much to feel bad. Somebody give me a witness right there. And yet our human body uh, walks up and down this earth for, uh, you know, uh, three score and ten years. And if by reason of strength, four years, uh, you know, four score. Uh, evidently, there was a creative God behind that. Amen. We can look at creation and see there's a God in heaven. We can learn some things about that God. Romans chapter 1 says that the things uh, which may be known of Him are uh, clearly seen by those which are made, uh, even His eternal power and, uh, and glory and Godhead. Uh, you know, it's obvious when you look at creation that God is interested in humanity, right? Uh, God put us upon this earth and He gave us all the provisions we need to be able to live, to be able to function, to be able to operate. God is evidently interested in meeting the needs of mankind, don't you think? God put a river out there and put fish in it for us to eat. God put a forest out there and uh, put animals hopping around in it for us to eat. God put an earth full of dirt and uh, seeds out there that we just got to put them in the ground. They'll sprout up. They'll grow. God's interested in meeting the needs of humanity. Uh, we understand that God, we can look at creation and see that God is a compassionate God. Uh, this is one of the big sticking points for a lot of atheists. They say, well, you know, you might be able to see design, but you can't see that God is a compassionate God. Well, He gave every creature on earth a mother. Right? Somebody to nurture, to care for, to watch over, to raise up. So we can look at creation. God has revealed Himself through creation. God has also revealed Himself through conscience. Right? Romans chapter 1 says that. It says that uh, even those, the Gentiles that are without a law, that their conscience is the law unto themselves, bearing witness of the testimony of God. I mean, hey, we know there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. Uh, isn't it interesting how all the world over, murder is a wrong thing? I mean, I thought the atheists said there were no absolutes, right? I mean, the atheists said that, that everything's relative, that there's no absolutes, that there's ultimately no right, no wrong. But if you were to look at those people and say, well, what do you think about Hitler? They'd say he was a wicked man. Well, you can't say Hitler's a wicked man unless you believe there's such things as wickedness and righteousness. So even our conscience bears witness to the, to the testimony of God. I would say that God has revealed Himself through commandment. God has spoken, and that's what Hebrews chapter 1 is talking about here. God has spoken in divers manners and sundry ways uh, through the prophets unto our fathers. He has revealed Himself through the spoken and through the written Word. I mean, listen, let me tell you something. If you don't believe in God, study this Bible carefully. Study this Bible carefully. Sixty-six books, and there's not a sentence of contradiction in it. I mean, this Bible is a miracle that we hold in our hands right now. It is a miracle that the Word of God... I mean, how... Uh, let me tell you something. You get, I don't know how many people we got here today, but you get 66 people in a room, they can't agree that the sky is blue. Right? Me and my wife get in the car together, we can't even agree a good place to eat. Amen? I think most marriages break up over choosing where to eat. That's my opinion. I'm not going to go into a big, long thing. Trust me, I'm tempted, but I'm not going to. But, you, I mean, listen, how can you have 66 different books in the Word of God... And every single one of them harmonized perfectly with each other. This Bible is a miracle. It bears witness to God. But the thing that I'm interested in this morning is the statement that's made in verse number 2. Now, I want you to notice it carefully again. It says, God, who in verse 1, who at sundry times in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Now, here's what I want you to consider for just a moment. We understand this is the Word of God. This is God's book. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, correct? 
We understand this, all this is God's Word. But the thing that's interesting to me is that as the writer of Hebrews begins to talk about Jesus, we have a description, a ninefold description concerning Jesus Christ. And I wonder if we could sum up everything that the Bible says about Jesus into a few words, what would that in a nutshell be? Theologians call the study of Christ Christology. Amen. I got news for you. Theologians ain't as smart as they think. They just add ology to anything, whatever it is, you know. If you're studying feet in the Bible, it'd be photology, you know. But Christology is the study of Christ in the Word of God. Him in particular. Theology is the study of God in a broad sense. Soteriology and, and is the study of salvation. Homardiology is the study of, of sin and so on and so forth. But Christology is the study of Christ, His person, His personality, His ministry, His work. And what interests me this morning is as God is wanting to tell us about His Son, He says He's spoken unto us by His Son and then gives us nine statements by which He defines His Son. And I want us to notice this morning, if you want a title, I've titled it this, Christology in a Nutshell. What is an overview of what the Bible says about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? If God was going to make nine statements about His Son, what would they be? If He was going to give us in a few sentences a description of Jesus Christ, the blessed and beloved Son of God, how would He describe Him? What are the things that He would want me and you to know? Well, I want you to notice three different categories this morning of these nine statements. Let me say, number one, that He speaks about His sublime majesty. When God wants us to know something about Jesus, the first thing He wants us to understand is how high and lofty, how holy, how glorious, how magnificent, how otherworldly and up above you and I He is. You know, part of my beef with the whole contemporary movement, I, go ahead, I went ahead and made three or four of you mad, so... You know, part of my beef with it is it seeks to lower the personage of the Lord Jesus Christ onto a level with me and you. Now, let me tell you something. I'm glad that he's touched with the feelings of my infirmities. I'm glad that it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. I'm glad that uh, though he was God and he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, I'm glad he made himself of no reputation but took upon himself uh, the form of sinful man and he became subject, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as Philippians 2 says. I'm glad that he did all those things. I'm glad that we can come unto him and approach unto him. But let us never... Forget, in, in understanding the nearness of Christ, let us never consider that to be the lowness of Christ. Listen, I understand that uh, we have a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, and I'm glad we do. But let us never forget that this same one that is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother is the very centerpiece of heaven's glory. He is the very source point of all of earth's creation. He is the very reason the angels sing. He's the reason the Bible was written. He's the reason the Spirit can comfort. He's the reason that God is interested in humanity. Let us never forget who Jesus truly is. And he makes a few statements about this sublime majesty. He wants us to understand how lofty a personage Jesus is. And the first thing I want you to notice is the position that's mentioned. What does it say? He's spoken unto us by who? By His Son. Now, I understand most of y'all already know what I'm about to say, and most of y'all already know that I know this and that I believe this. 
But just in case, somewhere, if the Lord Terry is coming in a thousand years from now, when nuclear bombs have fallen and they're digging, digging through the rubble of Wall Ridge Baptist Church and they dig up one old scratched up CD, let me put it on the record for that person that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and God in the flesh. I believe that. I believe that the term son is smaller than his role is. I don't believe that his role is smaller than the term son. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean this. I believe you and I have children so that we can understand something about God's relationship with his child. I don't say that to to diminish anybody that doesn't have kids or this. But what I'm saying is I think that having children is a part of the human experience to relate to us an understanding of God's relationship with His child. What I'm saying is this, God's relationship with Jesus is far bigger and grander and broader and more thorough and more exhaustive than even our understanding of what a father and son would be. I'm saying this, we're, we're familiar with the idea of a son so that we can understand something about the first and second persons of the Trinity. The first and second persons of the Trinity have a relationship far greater than me and you could ever even fathom. They are co-equal. I believe that what you believe about the Trinity will define much of what the rest of your doctrine is. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of people that are mixed up on the Trinity. I'm not going to go through a thousand heresies concerning the Trinity. I'm just going to give you the truth. I I don't believe that the Trinity is the Godhead made in three different parts. I don't believe the Trinity is God in three different forms. I believe that the Godhead, the Trinity, is God in three distinct persons. I believe they are all co-equal. I believe they are all co-eternal and co-existent. I believe they are all God, singular in and of themselves. And I think together they formulate and form the Godhead. In other words, we, we assign these numbers. We say the first person of the Trinity, that's God the Father. The second person of the Trinity, that's God the Son. third person of the Trinity, that's God the Spirit. And we do that because as we describe them, there has to be an order ascribed. But you mark her down, the Spirit of God is just as much God as God the Father is. And God the Son is just as much God as God the Father or God the Spirit. He is the Son of God. He did not become the Son of God. He's always been the Son of God. You know, it's interesting. In Isaiah, the Bible says, Unto us a a child is born, and unto us a son is given. It doesn't say, Unto us a child is given, and unto us a son is born. You say, Preacher, that's splitting hairs. No, here's why it's important. Because he became a child at Bethlehem, but he didn't become a son at Bethlehem. He was already a son before Bethlehem. Uh, You say, preacher, I don't know about that. Well, let's see what the Word of God says. Is He co-eternal? John chapter number 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. If you jump down to verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld His... Now, the Father was never made flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Spirit was never made flesh and dwelt amongst us. But the Son was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Son of God. I don't say that to say that He's lesser than the Father because I believe He's co-equal with the Father. I say it for this reason, to emphasize what He is and how grand He is. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. Listen, I, I, I'm glad for Moses. I mean, where would, where would we be today without Moses? I'm glad for Abraham. Where would we be without Abraham? I'm glad for David. Where would we be without David? But let me tell you something. One of these days as we gather with that assembly in heaven, uh, we're going to see Abraham and Moses and David bow their knee before Jesus Christ. He is superior and superlative to them. He is God. His position is denoted. Let me say, number two, that God would say something about His possessions. 
Now, I know we're not supposed to talk about money, right? But listen to what God says. The Bible says, "...whom he hath appointed heir of all things." You know, when we say possessions, maybe I better explain it this way. You know what God wants us to understand? God wants us to understand what His priority is. It's all about Jesus Christ. i got news for you this morning. This may upset folks. And by the way, this, is, this gets to the very heart of the issue with much of modern-day Christianity. People believe that modern-day Christianity is God saving man for man's sake. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is God saving man for his own glory's sake. I've got news for you. This whole thing, you say, what's this whole thing? Everything. I'm talking about the world. I'm talking about God's workings in the world. I'm talking about how He rises up leaders and sits down leaders, how He rises up nations and sits down nations. I'm talking about how He works in your life and in the life of the little boy halfway across the world. I'm talking about every single movement of the human experience. Is for the purpose of the glory of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about how that uh, one of these days, everything will be all one in one. That when the kingdom is delivered up to the Son, the Son's going to deliver it up to the Father. Uh, the Bible teaches us that all power and glory is delivered unto the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one it's about. Church, He's the one that it's about. If Walridge Baptist Church is ever anything, it won't be for us, it'll be for Jesus. If you're ever anything, it won't be for you, it'll be for Jesus. It's all about Him this morning. If your Christianity is about anyone other than Him, your Christianity is off track. Because it's all about Him. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Not for my enjoyment's sake. For His name's sake. You say, preacher, there's some things I just don't want to do. Well, and I'm not trying to be rude, but it ain't about what you want. Preacher, there's some things make me uncomfortable. Well, I'm sorry, it ain't about your comfort. What it's about is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we walk this earth. That's why we draw a breath. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we might be found unto the praise of His glory. And we might live unto Him. And I think we could say a word about those possessions. Don't you realize that no matter what this world says and does, eventually everything belongs to the Lord Jesus? Now, let, let, let me give you an example. Do you remember when the Lord was tempted in Luke chapter number 4 in the wilderness? There were three temptations. One of them was uh, that, you know, uh, he, he could command these stones to be made like unto bread. And, uh, of course, he said, Thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And then another one, the final one, was whenever the, the devil took him up to a pinnacle of the temple, a temple and said, You know, if you cast yourself down, uh, the Bible says that the angels shall bear thee up. And he said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Uh, but the middle one, he took him up to a high mountain. The Bible says he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, I think when we read that, what we think of is like, well, he just showed him all the kingdoms of the world at that moment of time. But that's not what it says. It says in a moment of time. In other words, he didn't just show him Napoleon's empire. He showed him uh, the, the British empire, the, the French empire. He showed him the Egyptian empire, the Assyrian empire, the Babylonian empire. And he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Here's the thing that he did not understand. And you know, you know how Jesus responded? He said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him alone. You know what he was saying? He was saying, don't you get it? They're all mine anyway. You may have jurisdiction, Satan, at this moment. You may have a say. You may be the God of this world. But I'm the God of the universe and everything that belongs in it. It's all mine. 
he speaks of his possessions. I'd say he'd also speak of uh, his power. Look what it says in the next phrase. By whom also he made the worlds. It's been said before that if you can accept Genesis 1-1, you should have no problem with the rest of the Bible. It's part of the reason there's such an attack on Genesis 1-1. Let me say this morning, I believe in a literal seven-day creation. Now, if you don't believe in that, that's fine. You can throw your shoe at me if you want, you know, but I, I'm wearing two to throw back, all right? So you better be careful. That's fine. If you don't want to believe that, that's your business. But I believe in a literal six-day creation, I guess we should say, and he rested on the seventh day. But I believe in a literal creation, a literal accounting of the book of Genesis. Science has never showed me anything convincingly otherwise. But let me tell you something. Even if science did, I'm not worshiping science. I'm worshiping Scripture and the Word of God and Christ. So, I, I mean, I'm not against science, but I'm just saying it's not my ultimate authority. Hey, science didn't save my soul on December 1st, 1997 and change my life. Jesus did. So just excuse me if I take the word of Scripture above what science falsely so-called might say. And so I, I believe in a literal. But they say that if you accept Genesis 1-1, you should have no trouble with the rest of the Word of God. And I believe there's some truth to that. If we believe that God, through and by Christ, created the world, and that's what Colossians says. Colossians says that the worlds were made by Him and for Him then we should have no struggle with any other thing that we are asked to believe that Christ is capable of doing. You know what I think God would want to say about Jesus? I think He'd want to say this. My Son created this world. I, through Him, created this world. Everything around you, all of your entire reality and existence, drips from His creative fingertips. He is the one that created this world. You'll find this dynamic all through the Word of God. You'll find that the Father talks about the Son, and you'll talk about find that the Spirit talks about the Son. Uh, let me tell you something. Any movement that is based upon the Spirit of God glorifying itself is a false movement. Because Christ said that He'd not speak of Himself, but He'd speak of me. Let's try that again. I'm willing if you are. Any, any movement based around the Spirit of God's glorifying of itself is a false movement. You say, what does that mean, preacher? Well, that means things like tongues. That, that means things like the idea of, uh, of a faith healer. Now, let me say this. I believe in faith healing, but I don't believe in faith healers. <laughs> I believe God heals people. I've seen God heal people. But my ability to take this handkerchief and throw it and hit you in the forehead and make you whole, that's nonsense. I can't do that. You won't find that anywhere in the Word of God. And so in any movement that's based around the Spirit of God glorifying itself is unbiblical because Christ said He'd not speak of Himself. He'll speak of me. He'll testify of me. The Father talks about the Son. He spoke from heaven, said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know what He said? He said, Hear ye Him. Now, I know that when we read that, we think of that in relation to Moses and Elijah. And I understand why we think that. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think there is an application there. But has it ever dawned on you that he didn't say, hear ye me and him? He said, hear ye him. So the Father places the glory and emphasis on the Son. Of course, what does the Son do? He turns around places the glory and emphasis back on the Father. But what I'm saying is this. God did the same thing as it relates to creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that. But Colossians tells me that it was God that created the heavens and the earth, but it also tells me that Jesus created the world. Now, how did that happen? Well, can I show you something? That'd be all right. Anytime you speak, there is an origin of knowledge. 
I mean, not for some of us. <laughs> but but you know, what I mean is, is there is a source of intelligence from which those words have come, right? I, I mean, in other words, there's a mouth, but then there's a mind behind the mouth, or there should be, amen? There's a mind behind the mouth. Can I say this? How did God create this world? He spoke it into existence. Well, who, who's, who's the Word? Jesus is the Word. I would say this. Can I describe it this way? That God is the source of creation. That Jesus is, is, is the function of creation. And that the Spirit of God is the life-giving element related to creation. And so when God sought to create the world, He did so through the power of the Son of God. By the way, I believe that's how He always deals with humanity is through the personage of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he'd say something about his sublime majesty. I think he'd probably say something about his superior manifestation. And he'd say, Preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, look what your Bible says, verse number 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of His power. Now, remember what the context is, right? In verse number 1, God spoke in a lot of ways, but now He's speaking through His Son. And the whole context of the book of Hebrews is the Old Testament was a good way, but the New Testament is a better way. So here's what God's doing. He's saying uh, God has spoken in a lot of ways, but now He's spoken through His Son. And let me tell you how much greater that speaking through His Son is. Let me tell you in some ways in which through the Word of God and through the Son of God we have a greater understanding of who God is. And I think there's three things that he basically points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me say before we even talk about him, how many remember in John chapter number 14 when Philip comes and he says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Uh, there, there's Christians that are like that all the time, you know. Uh, you know, Lord, straighten the music out, and it sufficeth us. Lord, uh, straighten, straighten the youth program, it sufficeth us. Lord, straighten the preacher out, make him preach shorter, it sufficeth us. I, I found this to be true, that if we're not satisfied in Jesus, we won't be satisfied at all. If we're not satisfied in Jesus, we won't be satisfied at all. If you're looking to me to make you happy, I'm sorry. If you're looking to the church to make you happy, I'm sorry. If you're looking to the church members to make you happy, I'm sorry. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. He said, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And you know how he responded? He said, Philip, have I been with you so long a time, yet thou hast not known me? Father, uh, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The chief role of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry was the expression of the person of God to humanity. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't walk straight down out of heaven right before Calvary and die on a cross and ascend right up 40 days later? He could have done that, but He didn't. Have you ever wondered why He was born in a manger? Why He was born in Bethlehem? Why He lived 33 and a half years? We know why. Because of His name, Emmanuel, God with us. His chief ministry, and He had several of them, he, of course, he was to uh, be a witness to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Of course, he was to show to mankind uh, the ability and power and interest of God to heal and to save and to change their lives. I understand it. But the chief ministry was to show God to humanity. That was the chief image, the chief ministry. And what does the Bible say about it? Well, I would note three things about this manifestation. Notice, number one, that it is not diminished in any way. The Bible calls him the brightness of his glory. The word literally means the essence. It means this. There's a lot of things that you can know about God. There's a lot of things you can know about God. 
If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find a lot of things about the nuances of God's personality and the way that He dealt with Israel. You'll find that God is a jealous God. You'll find there are times that God is wrathful and angry. You'll find times when God is full of pity for His people. Uh, You'll find uh, one of the most fascinating books in the Word of God to me is the book of Hosea. Because when you go through the book of Hosea, you see the way that sin breaks the heart of God. You can find all these nuances. But remember, we're talking nutshell theology, right? If we want to know who God is, how do we find it out? Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the brightness of His glory. He's the essence of who God is. When we learn of Jesus, we're learning of God. We're not just learning about a prophet of God. We're not just learning about a teacher of God or a follower of God or even a leader of followers of God. We are learning in observing the person and personality and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are learning about God Himself. The term brightness, I'm going to get real deep. Are you ready? If you you study carefully the Greek of this, are you ready? You know what it means? It means brightness. Literally, it has the idea of a ray of light. Right? Duh! Some of y'all are lacking some brightness this morning. It denotes a ray of light. That light that comes off the sun is of the same matter and substance and quality of the light that's on the sun. You know why? Because it came from the sun. You don't have a different kind of light here versus the light that you get from the sun. Uh, That sun, I don't know how many, many miles away. It's a bunch. I could say any number, and 80% of you would think I'm right, probably. Uh, Anybody know how far away the sun is? Like 196,000 miles, is that it? 393,000. That's way less than a thousand million. Is this what I'm talking about? I don't think anyone really knows how far the sun is away from Amen? No, I'm joking. But what I'm saying is this. All that distance away... And the light that shines upon our skin, that warms our skin, that lights our path, has traveled from that sun. It is undiminished. Now, it may not shine in the same magnitude, but it is of the same material. It is of the same quality as what has come from the sun. It's the same way with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that if you were to see Jesus in His earthly ministry and then to see God enshrined upon His throne, that it would not look different. But I'm saying that they are of the same quality of the same material. They're of the same substance. To see Jesus is to see God. I would note that it's not diminished. I would notice that it's not distorted. The Bible calls Him the express image of the Father. That word is interesting, that express image. It comes from a Greek word that we are pretty familiar with, and it's the word we get our word character from. Character. Now, it doesn't mean character in the sense of a person's uprightness or morality. But a character like a letter of the alphabet is a character. And you know what it's literally telling us? And you can find this right in your text. It's telling us what we already know from the text. But it's this, that He is exactly who the Father is. To see Jesus is to see nothing less than to see God Himself. He is the express image of the Father. To see Jesus is to see nothing less. Let me say this, not only is it not diminished and not distorted, I'd say it's not depleted. The Bible says, upholding all things by the word of His power. You know what that means? Sometimes we have to reverse engineer a problem. You know what that means, right? To reverse, that means to to, to look at something broken and figure out how it got broken. Sometimes we have to reverse engineer a problem. We have to start at the other end of it. 
And we look at this thing and we say, well, what does it tell us by telling us that all things are upheld by the word of his power? Can I flip that around and ask you this? What does it tell us that all things are still upheld? What does it tell us about his power that all things are still upheld? I don't know about you, but last time I went outside, there was still a sun in the sky and a moon at night. The earth was still spinning along in its orbit. Time was still functioning and moving. Humanity and reality itself were still in existence. You know what that tells me? That tells me that Jesus is just as much God today as ever He has been. The Bible says in Colossians that by Him all things consist. It means they hold together. So that means when I look around and see, and I know it feels like the world's falling apart, amen, but what I mean is when I see that creation is still holding together, that tells me that Jesus is still Jesus and He's still on His throne. Everybody has different beliefs about things. I understand that. But can I just tell you why I'm not afraid of climate change or global warming or whatever they decide to call it next week? Because the Bible has already told me how the earth is going to be destroyed. And it's not going to be because God lays down on His job or because you drive an SUV. Uh, There is an appointed day of judgment that's coming, the Bible says, in which the elements shall melt with fervent heat, Peter said to us. But I have no bigger worry of this earth falling out of orbit than I do of God falling off of His throne. Because the only thing that keeps it in orbit is that God is sitting on His throne. And so when I look around, there's a lot we can learn by seeing that He upholds all things by the word of His power. But when I see that all things are upheld, it tells me that His power has not depleted in one single iota. He's just as much God as He has ever been. He's just as powerful today as He's ever been. And can I just speak a word of testimony and witness to you? If you've got loved ones you're burdened for, He's just as able to save them today as ever He has been. Still the God of Elijah, right? <laughs> that was the difference between Elijah, uh, the followers of Elijah and Elisha. Whenever Elijah was taken up to heaven in, in a, a whirlwind, right? People say he was taken up in a chariot of fire, but that's not what your Bible says. Your Bible says the chariot of fire, uh, a fiber, listen to me, a fire separated. <laughs> Some of y'all have had a chariot of fiber before, amen? <laughs> We're about to go off the edge here. We better be careful. But the chariot of fire separated him and Elisha. And the difference is, you know why Elisha went on to do everything that he went on to do, a double portion of what Elijah did? Because he wasn't asking, where is the God of Elijah? He was asking, where is the Elijah of God? He understood that it's not about, listen, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, sometimes we get to thinking God's done fell off of His throne, but i got news for you, neighbor. He's just as much God today as He's ever been. He's just as powerful today as He's ever been. What's lacking today is the faith of men in Him. Us to put our confidence and trust in Him. I think He'd say a word about His superior manifestation. Let me give you one final thing and I'll be done. I think that God, if He was going to say a few things about Jesus, just a few of them, I think He'd point to His sublime majesty, His position, He's the Son, His possessions, He's the heir of all things, His power, He's the creator of the world. I think He'd say a word about His superior manifestation, that that His appearance, His representation of God, it's not diminished, He's the brightness of His glory. It's not distorted, He's the express image of His person. And it's not depleted, He upholds all things by the word of His power. But let me give you one final one. I think if He just had a few things to say, He'd want to say something about Jesus' sufficient ministration. He said a word about who Jesus is. 
And he said a word about what Jesus has represented. But now he's going to tell us something about what Jesus has done. And I think he would say something, number one, about the sufficiency of his propitiation. Now, we know what that word propitiation is. I think most of us do. If you don't, let me define it for you. It's the word propitiation is the Old Testament version of the word atonement. And it reflects the idea that Jesus has not just covered our sins, He's taken our sins away. And isn't that what your text says? Notice it carefully. It says, when He had by Himself purged our sins. I think if God could say just a quick word about Jesus, surely in all of the wonderful things God would say, He would point to Calvary. And He would say that Jesus by Himself purged our sins. I, oh my, I hope you got your hip waders. We're going to go into some deep water for just a moment. I, I want to be careful with how I say this. We understand there are three distinct persons of the Trinity, correct? We understand there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. We understand that while they all three are co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, they're all three God, together they comprise the Godhead. We, we understand that, right? Uh, we understand they are three distinct persons because we look at the baptism of Jesus. And the Bible says that the Father spoke from heaven, the Spirit of God descended in the likeness of a dove, and Jesus was being baptized. So we understand they're three distinct persons. Not three different gods, but three distinct persons of the Godhead. You understand the, the role of the various persons of the Godhead at Calvary, right? God was setting up in heaven and He was judging Christ. He was pouring out His wrath upon the Son of God. Where was the Spirit of God? The Spirit was there in the temple, bearing witness that the old way was done, that the new way had been made. He was the one that was rending the veil in the temple in twain. That's what Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiest was now made. Where was Jesus? Jesus was upon the cross of Calvary. At the point of Christ's death, and I can't explain all of it, but there was a severing in some way that took place. So I don't know about that, preacher. Well, you're going to have to argue with God. Because Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'm not removing the role of the Father from the crucifixion. I'm not removing the role of the Spirit from the crucifixion. But let me just say this, that when your Bible says that by Himself He purged our sins, I believe it means by Himself He purged our sins. He became our sins upon Calvary. I understand God gave His Son. I understand the Spirit of God bore witness and testimony to it. But it was Jesus that bore and became our sins that paid our sins upon Calvary. The Bible says He didn't just pay our sins, He purged our sins. Meaning He abolished them. He separated them from ourselves. That's what purging is, right? When you separate something from something else. When they purge gold and they refine it, they purge out all the impurities and they separate them one from another. And that's what He's done for you and I. He has purged our sins. He has borne our sins. And I think God would want to say, don't ever forget it was Jesus that did that for you. Don't ever forget it was Jesus that did that for you. I'm the Father and I gave my Son and I love you and I wanted to save you. The Spirit of God indwells you now if you're saved and He loves you and He comforts you and He sheds abroad in your heart my love. But don't ever forget it was Jesus that died for you. It wasn't the Father that died for you. It wasn't the Spirit that died for you. God is a, is a Spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Uh, the Spirit is a... Well, this is smart. The Spirit. Amen? It was Jesus that died for you. It was Jesus that died for me. He purged our sins. I think He'd say something about His sufficient propitiation. I think He'd say something about the sufficiency of His priesthood. 
What does the next phrase say? What did he do after he did that? He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, we could say something about his position, but we're going to say that here as we close. But the ministry of the Lord Jesus, presently speaking, is he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. You know, I think if God was just going to say a few words about Jesus, one of the things he'd say is, is don't ever forget that he's the only way to me. That you can't get to me on your own. That you're not worthy of being in my presence on your own. That you need an advocate. You need a mediator. You need an intercessor. And there's one God. One God. And one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. He's the only way. And His priesthood is sufficient. Let me tell you something. Buddha can't get you to God. Allah cannot get you to God. Joseph Smith cannot get you to God. Hey, listen, the, the, uh, uh, Allah and Muhammad, they can't get you to God. Uh, the, the Pope can't get you to God. The priest can't get you to God. Uh, Mammal can't get you to God. Papal can't get you to God. Mama and Daddy can't get you to God. There's only one person that can take a lost sinner, purge his sins, and draw him into the presence of an Almighty God. And that man is Jesus. And don't ever forget that. I think, and I'm done, he'd say something about the sufficiency of his position. Look what it says. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. There's no one closer to God than Jesus. He's superior to the angels. I hear people all the time, I, well, I say that. I don't, I hear, you hear people tell stories all the time. They'll talk about, oh, well, so-and-so saw an angel, and boy, wouldn't that be wonderful. I Listen, that's fine. If you, if you want to feel that way, I won't, I, I'm not going to be a cynic. I, I'm really not. But can I just say this? All the angels in heaven's glory are nothing compared to the man from Galilee that reached down and grabbed my wretched hand, that when I was a leper, reached out and became unclean and touched me and took my leprosy, that took my sin debt, that paid my sin debt, that became my sin debt. Nobody can compare to Him. And you know what I am to Him? I'm a joint heir with Christ. (laughs) Hey, listen, God bless you. You can pray to see angels if you want. But I've seen Jesus, not with the flesh, not with the sight of the fleshly eye, but in a spiritual sense. You say, that's not scriptural. Well, Paul said he's been set forth, crucified evidently among you. And I have been made a child of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You see your angels if you want to. You see religious leaders if you want to. You see people that are your heroes if you want to. And that's fine. I'm not going to be critical of you. But let me just say, if you know Jesus, you know the main one. If you know Jesus, there's nothing higher to attain to. And if you miss out on Him, you've missed everything. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.